This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. Good evening. This is Don Jeffries. I'm your guest host tonight, filling in for the great Richard Serrett, who will be back next week. Uh, We're on AM 740 and 96.7 FM in Toronto. Glad to be with you tonight. Uh, we have a very special guest for us. Uh, Jim DiEugenio is the author of Destiny Betrayed, which is about the Garrison investigation into the assassination of President Kennedy, first published in 1992, later revised and updated in 2012. And another great book, Reclaiming, Reclaiming Parkland, which was first published in 2013. And we're going to be talking about the new version, expanded version, which is titled The JFK Assassination, which features a foreword by none other than Oliver Stone. It offers a detailed critical examination of the Warren Commission's evidence and conclusions, as long as it is also an analysis of the CIA's influence in Hollywood. He is also the co-author and editor of The Assassinations, Probe Magazine on JFK, MLK, RFK, and Malcolm X. He co-edited Probe Magazine from 1993 to 2000 and was a guest commentator in the anniversary edition of Oliver Stone's JFK re-released by Warner Brothers in 2013. He has an MA in Contemporary American History from California State University Northridge, is also a specialist in the history and theory of cinema, and has written numerous film reviews, which can be found online. Jim, welcome to the show. Good evening, Don. It's a, the, the full title is The JFK Assassination, The Evidence Today. All right. Uh, it was it was just just been reissued. Uh, you're right. It was about uh, three weeks ago. The publisher reissued it. All right, and um, it's a revised and updated version, of course. All right, and most of the revisions in that book uh, were in part three, and that's the part um, that. Well, I I didn't know. This seems to be the part that's attracting the most attention, and it's. That part largely consists of my critique of Tom Hanks' influence in Hollywood and, to a lesser extent, Spielberg's 
Okay, and it's really because if you take a look at its ranking on Amazon, it's like number six in films. You know, I never meant it as a film study book. <laughs> you know, that part of the book is 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 not anywhere near the majority of the book. But that seems to be what's hit home with most of the people who read it. I, I don't know. Is that the way you feel about it? Yeah, well, I, I certainly I, I I'm fascinated by that. And as you know, I and Jim and I uh, have never talked in person, but we we know each other in a cyber sense for many years online. Uh, we yeah. discuss things uh, certainly on the on these Kennedy assassination forums, which are all over the place. And I first became uh, familiar with your work uh, back probably back in the late 1990s when I read this fantastic article in Probe magazine about the posthumous assassination of JFK. Oh, okay. And uh, you know, I've talked I've talked that up quite a bit, and and you and I are one accord on that. I, I've certainly put uh, used it quite a bit in hidden history, uh, the same kind of uh, assessment of the Kennedys and the way the left looks at them. We'll talk about that a little bit later. But uh, yeah, the new book, I, I, I fascinated it. You know, obviously I had Reclaiming Parkland. I read it uh, when it came out and I looked for the new stuff and uh, fascinated. I want to talk a little bit about that. First of all, you and I, I think, look at this the same way. And we'll get more into the Kennedy assassination itself. But assuming that a lot of the listeners know some of the minutiae in that case, I, I love the way you looked at the, certainly Tom Hanks, Steven Spielberg, uh, the new the movie The Post, things like that. I, I call what Tom Hanks is doing, and, and to a lesser extent uh, Steven Spielberg, McHistory. It's fast food consumption for the masses. And, and you're a historian. I'm an amateur historian. Um, so I, I love the way you, you point out the mistakes and the, and the way they look at these issues. So why don't you talk a little bit about uh, the new, new new part as far as uh, which, which you wrote about uh, Tom Hanks and Spielberg and, and then their treatment of history. All right. The, the last part of the book, part three, is really more or less what I tried to do there was to show that something has happened in Hollywood in the last approximately, I'd say, 20 years, okay? And this is why I think it's so important uh, to understand um, just what what's going on. See, after Oliver Stone's movie, um, and I, I, I don't know, if, if you don't remember it, if you weren't old enough, at that time, if you don't remember it, that movie created, to say it was a firestorm is to underestimate what it did, okay? It really, <laughs> really, you know, created a controversy before it came out. If you recall, about seven or eight months before the movie came out, it was already being attacked. Right, you know? exactly. Yep. And so what happened is, that it created uh, a kind of popular uproar, the likes of which that I really, really don't remember. You have to go back to Bonnie and Clyde for any American <laughs> film that created, and I don't even think Bonnie and Clyde created that kind of reaction, okay? But you'd have to go back that far to find another film that created a, a kind of mini- popular uprising the way that 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 oliver stone's movie did now i'm, I'm not going to go into all the reasons why i think that happened that would take another show okay right. but clearly 
the CIA was kind of blindsided by this, all right? And since a lot of the reaction to the film centered on secrecy in government and suspicion about executive intelligence agencies, um, what happened was that the CIA sent a guy named Chase Brandon, okay, to set up an office in Hollywood. Now, what was, C- he, what was Chase Brand? What was Chase Brandon's uh, title or whatever with the CIA? What was his position there? Well, prior to becoming the liaison officer with the entertainment industry, he was in the clandestine service for over twenty years. Prior to doing that. And that, of course, means that he was in covert operations. Now, that could mean any number of things, but obviously part of covert operations is is propaganda. Okay? You know, E. Howard Hunt was an expert propagandist. So was David Phillips. It goes hand in hand with covert operations. So they sent Brandon out here. And to make a long story short, and I detail this in the book, Okay, and I go into depth and length about it. He, whatever you think about whether or not the CIA should be involved in this stuff, from their point of view, he was a smashing success. There's no doubt about it. By the end of his tenure, and I think he was out here for something like about 14 years, okay, you know, by the end of his tenure, he had people in the movie industry going to him. Okay, he didn't have them track them down. You know, they actually went to him. And not only was he influential in uh, actually reshaping certain projects, but I have it from more than one witness that Brandon actually wrote whole scenes in movies the way he wanted <laughs> them portrayed. Okay. Now, you know, I, in, in the book, I go into this whole issue. And in my opinion, in my opinion, you shouldn't, that should not ha- be happening. I mean, you should not have a kind of collaborator, a secret collaborator on a work of art who obviously and clearly has an agenda the way Chase Brandon did. Okay, and if you you read that part of the book, I use some quotes by him as to show where he was coming from. He, from the very beginning, he said he wanted to change the image of the CIA in films. And I would have to say that I believe he accomplished it. He was so successful (laughs) that he was so successful that the guy who followed him a guy named Paul Barry, okay, only had to keep the office up for a year and a half because he said that now the operation is more or less self-sustaining. You know, we, we, don't, we don't really need to have a guy there anymore. 
Well, look, you know, look they, at how successful they were with with Argo, and you talk a little bit about that. I mean, that that was a, basically a, you know a, an, an homage to the CIA, and and we, you talk about that, and I wrote about it too, about how it was absolutely shameful the wall between the entertainment world and the government world when the yes. best picture was nominated was named from the White House, and again, you had a leftist, a supposed leftist President Obama, supposed leftist activist Ben Affleck. So, talk a little bit about that. What? But what, what? Wasn't that incredible? I, I, yes, I tried to make a big deal about that in the book. Okay, I said, can you imagine having the announcement for Best Picture at the Oscars coming from a giant screen above the uh, above the stage from the White House and Michelle Obama actually going ahead and announcing the Best Picture Oscar? I said. You know, what is wrong with this picture? I mean, don't these people understand what the heck they're doing? You know, politics and art, you know, should not be mixed together like that. You know, I I don't want to go overboard and and make, you know, comparisons to, you know, sort of fascist dictatorships. But that, to me, came kind of a little bit too close to the edge. You know, and, and to me, it doesn't matter if it's on the left or the center or what those people think is the is, you know, is is the extreme right. Okay, you know, I mean, I I just don't think something like that should happen. And then, of course, the winner that year, as you said, was Argo, which was basically a peon to the CIA about the Iranian Revolution. You know, and it kind of picked the the one part of that whole crisis, the only part that was considered successful. And wasn't you know, it convenient out, that, that, that that picture just happened to happen when they decided to announce it from the White House? <laughs> okay, we have, we have some music coming up, Jim. So we're gonna we're gonna catch uh, we're gonna catch you again after this uh, brief break. We'll be right back. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. From Zoomer Radio, AM 740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM 740. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. Hello, we're back. Uh, we're talking to Jim DiEugenio, longtime uh, JFK assassination researcher. We're talking about uh, the Kennedy assassination, obviously, Hollywood, and the thin line between government propaganda and the entertainment uh, business. So, Jim, you want to continue with the points you were making before the break? Yes, yeah. Like, like, like I was trying to conclude, Chase Brandon's success in Hollywood in a relatively short period of time maybe like 13 years, was absolutely remarkable. You know, to the point that, uh, as I said, his successor, uh, or supposedly his successor, a guy named Paul Berry, only stayed in office about a year and a half, all right? Because as the CIA said, you know, they now had what they called a very active network of people in Hollywood helping in whatever way they can to give back, okay? Give back for what is something that I don't know what the guy means by that. But they had people now like J.J. Abrams, uh, 
you know, uh, even Tom Cruise, Phil Alden Robinson, okay, et cetera. They were interacting with those kinds of people now, you know, on a weekly kind of a basis, you know. And like I said, to me, I just, I just don't think that that's the right thing to do. But that's the thing they did for Zero Dark Thirty also. You know, the, 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 the film director and the writer on that film met several times with the CIA, you know, and they got a lot of advice and a lot of counseling from them on how to treat that story. You know, and, and I, 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 have a, I have a real problem with this because coming from where I come from, okay, studying these assassinations of the 60s, you know, it's, it's, it's bad enough to have this kind of influence through the FBI and the CIA over newspapers and magazines, which has been plentifully documented in the past by very many people, not just me, but you know, but many other luminaries in the field. All right. But now to spread it to the big screen, you know, I mean, it's just to me, that's just too much. You know, and then when, yeah. when you think when you think of these people in Hollywood who consider themselves, you know, leftists or liberals, and then you see what they're doing, you know, a really good example would be the Post, which is why I spent in the new edition of the book I spent about twenty pages trying to explain everything that was wrong with that film. Great you know, and and I, I just find it shocking. You know, in retrospect. Sure. Well, and look, look at the post, and, and I'm I'm so glad you're out there doing it because what happens is people like us are out there that that know the truth about these matters and we know what the facts are, and we're watching a a, me, a powerful medium like this. When you have people like Tom Hanks and Steven Spielberg, uh, giants of the industry that have such a platform that can put this kind of disinformation out there, this twisted take on, on history, Mick history as I call it, it's very dangerous. And, and tell us a little more about the Post. Obviously, we, we know Ben Bradley just from studying the Kennedy assassination. You know, this guy was supposed to be JFK's best friend or tight friend, but he, he never wanted to do any critical studies in the Kennedy assassination. He had George Lardner Jr. there for years, who was rumored to be tied to the intelligence community, that wrote a lot of awful articles on it, distorted coverage of the HSCA and so forth. And then you had uh, his background where he had been apparently close to Richard Helms of the CIA. Hardly uh, someone who would, who would, uh, was a bastion of the free press. Um, uh, so tell us a little about the Post and how that's, that's the distorted view of uh, what was really going on with the Pentagon Papers and so forth. All right. And that, for that part of the book, all right, um, I did a lot of research. Okay, I did, I, and I interviewed... I interviewed a couple of lawyers for the Times in that case who were actually in court, you know, fighting uh, what Nixon wanted to do to bottle up uh, the Pentagon Papers, right? And the, the in-house counsel for the New York Times back during the Pentagon Papers days um, was a guy named James Goodale, who's still alive. All right, and I interviewed him on more than one occasion. He told me, he goes, Jim, if you think that the movie is bad now, 
you should have seen the first draft of the script. He goes, when I heard this was going on, I called Spielberg's office and I said, I would like to read the script that you're going to shoot for this movie. All right. And so and he so he sent it to me. He goes, Jim, in the first draft of the script, Ellsberg was barely even in the picture. He was in the movie for one scene. One scene. It's when Ben Bichdikian goes up to Cambridge. Uh, Ellsberg is hiding out in this hotel room with a copy of the Pentagon Papers on the bed. Because that's the only scene that he was in. And so when I read that, I said, wait a second. <laughs> what are you guys doing? I mean, if there's no Daniel Ellsberg, you don't have a movie. And you're only well, going to put it. him in there for one scene? And well, they, all he's they, they basically... do is hand off the Pentagon Papers to this reporter? <laughs> Well, has, has Daniel Ellsberg, has he, has, do we know what his reaction in the film was? He couldn't have been too pleased. Well, Daniel, I think, was just happy to get the picture made, okay, okay. And, to, and to get some notoriety for the Pentagon Papers. Uh, when, when I, like, communicated with him by email, okay, he didn't protest too much about it. He had a book coming out, The Doomsday Machine. Okay, about his work as a atomic bomb, uh, you know, statistician and analyst. All right, so you know, I, I you know, I, 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 I didn't think that he was going to really, and and he really didn't. The guy who did was James Goodale. Okay, you know, and uh, you know, one of the things we talked about, you know, and I think this is a very apt comparison. You know, making a movie about the Pentagon Papers through the Washington Post would be like making a movie about Watergate through the New York Times. You know, mm-hmm. it just doesn't yeah. make any sense. You know, yeah. the, let's, let's put it another way. The whole saga of the Pentagon Papers lasted for three years. This was from the night that Ellsberg uh, took the Pentagon Papers out of the Rand Corporation on the West Coast where he was working until the conclusion of his trial with Anthony Russo, in which him and Anthony Russo were on trial for a total of about 145 years in prison if they were convicted. Okay? That lasted three years. All right? The main characters in that drama were Ellsberg, uh, Russo, Neil Sheehan at the New York Times, and Richard Nixon, who was Nixon and John Mitchell, his attorney general, who were determined uh, to put Ellsberg and Russo away. In that entire three-year drama, the Washington Post figures for two weeks. Two weeks! That's it. Okay? And, 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 And we're supposed to make a movie about this incredible story and, you're, and yeah. you extract two weeks from it you know and you yeah. expect to do it I mean it, it's just kind of my, and then of course it's not bad enough that they essentially extracted a two week passage out of a three year epic story but then what they did with that two weeks I mean please to try and portray <laughs> Catherine Graham as some kind of heroine <laughs> oh, in the Vietnam yeah. War. I mean, 
I mean, this is how bad it got. This is how bad it got. <laughs> I, I literally could not believe some of the things that Meryl Streep was saying. That's not to detract from Meryl Streep, of course. She's a good actress, okay? But her character is... I, I couldn't believe it. I had to go back and see the movie again and take a whole yeah. other set of notes because I was just flabbergasted. Well, my hat's right. off for you to be to to be for be able to watch that. Is just like you know to be able to wade through reclaiming uh, history. I I, you know, I I couldn't do it. So you're a better man than me on that. But but as far as as, as far as far as though, I'm glad that that we have someone out there like you willing to do that because that that takes a lot of time to do it and it takes now, well, a lot of it takes a strong also, the only to watch theater the around in my area where it was playing was one of these high class you know uh, exalted theaters. So I had to pay fourteen seventy five both times to see the picture. You know, so you're talking almost 30 bucks to see this. Well, actually, yeah, about 30 bucks to see the thing. All right, twice. So there's this one scene in the film, which I just, yeah, I was, I just, I don't remember if my mouth flew open, but that's the kind of reaction I hear, I, I remember. Okay, it's when she goes over to Bob McNamara's house. All right, and she is somehow shocked and surprised that McNamara uh, could have taken part in Johnson's Vietnam policy, you know, <laughs> and hidden some of the, the worst elements. Because that's essentially what the Pentagon Papers is about. It's, it's, it's hardest on Johnson, you know, because of all the deceptions he used in order to go ahead and escalate the Vietnam War. All right. Now, this to me is like the famous scene, which I think all film lovers understand, in the in the in the movie Casablanca, you know, where where Claude Rain says, "I'm shocked, I'm shocked that there's gambling at Rick's," okay, which of course he knew about was always happening for a long period of time, you know, and that was all just kind of a put on, just an act. Well, if you know anything about Johnson's relationship with Kate Grant. Okay. She was called into the White House in 1964, and a couple of her editorial managers came in with her. And Johnson essentially explained to her that he planned on escalating the war after the election. So she knew before it started what was going to happen. Now, also, if you remember, okay, and I put this in the book, you know, during that election, Johnson lied his head off about yeah. Vietnam. One of his big lines was, is, you, know, you know, I'm not going to send American boys across the Pacific to do what Asian boys should be doing. Shades you know, of and, uh, but, Wilson and FDR, huh? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> which is, of course, what he was planning to do. Okay, yeah. and then, then his other line was, we seek no wider war, which is another lie. That's a, and so, in other words, she knew about this in 1964. The yeah. Washington Post supported the expansion of the war, you know, all through every single escalation that Johnson made. That The New York Times actually did ask a few questions about, 
you know, the number of civilians that were dying because of the bombing campaign. The Post almost never did that. And in fact, Johnson once said, he once said in private, something like, you know, Kate Graham is worth two divisions to me in, in Indochina. <laughs> All right? So to, for Spielberg and Hanks to, make, to, to go ahead and film that scene, you know, that's an abomination of history. And the other thing they did is they tried to make McNamara into a kind of a bad guy. Yeah. Look, as far as the Pentagon Papers went, McNamara did not try and suppress those at all. Okay, he, in, in 1967, he's the one who commissioned the study. And he's the one who shepherded it through. And he's the one who made it top secret for the simple reason that he did not want Johnson to know about it because he knew Johnson would terminate it if he found out about it. Leslie Galb, who was the editor of the project, said, I never had any problem getting any documents. All I had to do was say McNamara's name, and by magic, you know, they would appear on my desk. You know, and he said McNamara took me to his house, and he had a lot of this stuff in his closet. He had taken it out of the Defense Department, all right, and because he thought a lot of it would disappear if he left it there. And he put it in his home, and he gave it to me. You know, he wanted everything on the table for that yeah. study. And the, and the re, and now, see, and, and the thing is, this is what, and this is why that movie, I believe, is so pernicious. It makes false heroes out of Bradley and Graham, all right? Absolutely. And it kind of turns McNamara into a heavy. When, in fact, the truth is, if you know anything about the real history of the Vietnam War, by 1967, I believe, and a lot of other people believe, that McNamara was going through some kind of an emotional breakdown. Johnson insisted on keeping the bombing up. He spurned almost every hope of any kind of peace talks, even though Bobby Kennedy was trying to push him into doing that at that time. All right? Okay, and a lot of reports are that McNamara would sometime just go into his office, sit at his desk, and start crying, you know? Yeah. And I believe, I believe, and I can back this up with some evidence, I believe he did that. He was having that breakdown because he knew that Johnson had completely turned around what Kennedy's plan was. Okay, Jim, I gotta you know. stop. We're, we're, we're up against another break. We're gonna continue this discussion with Jim Eugenie on the other side. We'll be right back. Where there's smoke, there's The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Don't be afraid. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM740.
Hi, we are back with Jim DiEugenio. Uh, we're talking all things JFK assassination. Uh, we've been having a good discussion here about uh, Hollywood and how um, the CIA and other government intervention has really uh, transformed, uh, I believe, the way we look at the, a lot of these subjects. Uh, certainly, going back to Oliver Stone in 1991, JFK, and I, I have a connection to that film as well. I, I teach a course out here in the, uh, my county's adult education. Believe it or not, they let me teach a course on, on the film, on the film JFK, and uh, so I, I really enjoy doing that. I know the film real well. Uh, my respect grows for it, uh, you know, with every every passing time I watch it. But since 1991. There's been such a sea change there. We would have thought that with the way, as you mentioned, it had such a revolutionary impact. Dan Rather editorialized against it on the CBS Evening News, I think, three times. Unprecedented stuff. Oliver Stone really, really uh, caused some incredible ripples out there in Hollywood. But we don't see anyone picking up the mantle other than him. Uh, when you talk about people like Hanks and Spielberg, J.J. Abrams, people like that, they're all on the other side. They want to sell this this disinformation. And uh, let's talk a little bit about the animosity towards Kennedy itself, because I, I think you and I are, are, are a couple of really only few people out there that see this kind of um, – I, criticism of the Kennedys is being irrational to the point, and uh, maybe we can talk a little bit of the new movie Chappaquiddick. Uh, I don't know what your thoughts are on that, but I, I think that it's kind of in line with that. But I'm just astounded at the way the left, and we certainly can talk about Noam Chomsky, one of your favorites, and and the way he, uh, <laughs> the way he. I mean, and that's an example I think of, of the of the kind of left, the dichotomy between people like Chomsky on the left, who's seen as an anti-war darling, and most people don't know. I pointed out several times that his first few books were were written with grants from the United States military. Now, I don't know many other experts, any, any so-called anti-war experts who's criticizing our military policy, who's being funded by it. But Chomsky, you want to talk a little bit about him and maybe compare him? To, it's the same kind of thing, though. They're, they're really uh, distorting the record of Kennedy as far as uh, his, his record, going back to the Algerian speech that you talk about quite a bit, and, and certainly on the way he conducted his presidency and was the last president really to opt for peace over and over again. Uh, and the way these left just continue to attack him and try to paint him as a cold warrior and uh, basically say because his life really wasn't too significant, he wasn't that great of a guy, so yeah, he got killed, but who really cares? You want to talk a little bit about that? Uh, uh, okay. Um, a long time, uh, let's see, about five years ago, I decided that I was going to go ahead and explore this in, entire issue. All right, that is what really was Kennedy's foreign policy, you know, and, you know, because, look, if you read the JFK assassination books, right, then all you hear about time after time after time, you would think that Kennedy spent his entire presidency on Vietnam and Cuba. That's it. You know, so, you know, well... Did he really spend a thousand days on Vietnam and Cuba? You know, I, I, so I then took a look and said, you know something, there's another problem with this. Because although everybody mentions his Cuba policy and his Vietnam policy, nobody explains why, number one, Kennedy did not send in the Navy to bail out the Bay of Pigs when, in fact, there were ships right off the coast of Florida that he could have called upon to do that with. All right. Uh, and then Admiral Arleigh Burke, 
you know, and the CIA and Nixon were urging him to do that. All right. Secondly, why did he not send combat troops into Vietnam in November of 1961 when everybody was urging him to do so? And number three, why did he not bomb the missile silos during the missile crisis? Why? Why did he not do all three of those things? You know, because we know that Nixon urged him during the Bay of Pigs uh, declare a beachhead and invade the island. All right, we know what Johnson would have done with the troops in Vietnam because he he wanted to do it from uh, 1961, so he would have gone along with those. Um, and Eisenhower backed up Johnson, and we know with the missile crisis that. Everybody, by the end of the, the second week, you know, everybody except Bobby Kennedy, you know, was urging him to go ahead and not just bomb, but and some of them wanted to invade the island. And we know today what would have happened because we know today that the Cubans had 13 tactical atomic warheads there. So any invasion would have been incinerated, you know, by those atomic weapons. And Kennedy would have had no choice except to retaliate. You know, so why didn't he do those things? And so I said there must be something we're missing here. Okay, some part of the puzzle, you know, is not prevalent. It's not written about. So I decided to go outside the Kennedy assassination book field. All right, and so and I started digging through other things, and I found a few sources that really helped me in this regard. And I found out that what happened was that Kennedy had a kind of transformative experience in 1951. All right. And he met with a diplomat in the State Department in Saigon named Edmund Gullion. And he was there in Saigon because the next year he had planned on running for the Senate, and he wanted to be a little bit more well-informed about foreign affairs. Okay? And so he met Gullion at this rooftop restaurant in Saigon, and he asked him, he goes, you know, is France going to win this war? And Gullion was very straightforward and said, there's no way in Hades that France is going to win the war. You know, and so Kennedy goes, well, how come? And he goes, Ho Chi Minh has the Viet Minh so fired up about this being their country that they would rather die than go back under the yoke of colonialism. France will never be able to win a war of attrition. They'll never be able to win a guerrilla war where you have to kill more of the enemy than the enemy kills of you. And the reason they won't win is because the French home front will never support it. Now, in a nutshell, I don't have to tell you that that's exactly what happened to the United States. Okay? All right, the American uh, home front would not support this war of attrition that Johnson and Westmoreland decided to execute in Vietnam. That meeting at which Bobby Kennedy was in attendance, he said that had a deep impact on Kennedy's thinking. All right? And from that moment on, 
he began to make speeches, write letters to his constituents, make radio addresses, and he was like a lonely voice in the wilderness. Jim, I hate to interrupt you again. We're 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 hearing the music again. There's so much good information. We're gonna we're gonna pick up uh, right up to these uh, few commercial messages. Beaming across North America, the Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of the Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. When in doubt, blame the government. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. Talking to Jim DiEugenio. Uh, Jim, go on to go ahead and uh, pick up where you left off. Finish your thoughts. So that that meeting with Gullion transformed his whole view of for American foreign policy in the third world. He decided that we had to be for something rather than just be anti-communist. Okay, that was not going to work. All right, because in his view nationalism was the real motivation for these countries coming out of what is commonly called the second age of colonialism and those countries were basically in africa and in asia all right and so he did this for six years he was essentially the only guy in washington talking about this issue and it was too far it was too far out for either the democrats or the republicans and he specifically criticized both the Democrats and Republicans for failing to understand this issue. And this all culminated in what I consider Kennedy's greatest speech, which is his famous June 1957 speech on the Senate floor, in which he specifically attacked Nixon, the Dulles brothers, and Eisenhower for helping the French stay in Algeria. And he specifically said that didn't we not learn from three years ago when the French fell at Dien Ben Phu? Didn't he not learn that we should not tie ourselves to the desperate effort of a French imperial empire to hang on to its far-flung possessions? Would we not be better served if we went ahead and convinced them to go to the negotiating table? and find a graceful way out of this painful situation. The object in those negotiations should be number one, to save the French nation, and number two, to free Africa. Now, can you imagine a guy talking like that on the floor of the Senate in 1957? Yeah. 
I, sure I mean, revolutionary. Well, I, and I'm, I'm, I'm really glad that you that you point this stuff out because no one else is doing that. And right. uh, Kennedy was really fighting decades and decades. I don't know where you go back to Grover Cleveland or somebody was the last really <laughs> anti-colonials. I mean, starting with Teddy Roosevelt. You know, we we had this imperialistic. Uh, jingoistic kind of a colonialist attitude towards the rest of the world and kennedy was fighting that and if, if we watched i think you've talked a little bit of that the the film uh, virtual jfk which shows yes. exactly what what happens when kennedy kennedy over and over rejected the call for war and we've seen since that time not a single president when there's rumbling somewhere i mean donald trump talked about we need to stop all these senseless wars that's why a lot of people were attracted to him but as soon as he's as soon as he ordered and presented with you know ridiculous evidence, doesn't matter how absurd it is, he he commits the troops and and all the presidents have since Kennedy and I, I think you know we talk a little bit about that how he was the last really voice for peace we had in the White House. Yeah, well that's that's I think that's substantially true because uh, if you take a look at his policies, Kennedy's policies um, that he tried to enact in those three years. Many of them were altered, and a lot of them were simply reversed by the combination of Johnson and then Nixon and Kissinger. You know, and I can name a few places. I mean, you know, Indonesia, for example, Congo is another example. Dominican Republic, you know, is, is, is another example. You know, and, and of course, you know, the one that ended up being an utter and complete disaster was was in Indochina, you know. But Indonesia is one that doesn't get talked about very much, and I think that's very important because that culminated in uh, in 1965, the overthrow of Sukarno, in what many people consider what is probably uh, the CIA's bloodiest coup with help from the British, all right, uh, in history, in which, uh, to this day, nobody knows how many people died. But it was at least 500,000 people perished, you know, in the overthrow of Sukarno and the installation of Suharto. And Kennedy stood by Sukarno to the bitter end. You know, he was like the only guy in Washington standing by him. You know, and in fact... In Greg Pulgrain's book, The Incubus of Intervention, Kennedy was actually arranging deals for Sukarno because he did not think that the Indonesian government was getting enough out of these, uh, tra- you know, like these mining and petroleum drilling projects. You know, he wanted the Indonesian government to get 60% to a 40% for the company. And of course, if you don't know anything about this, Indonesia was one of the richest areas for natural resources in the entire world. So you're talking a lot of money, all right? Well, Kennedy was arranging deals for Sukarno, and he was arranging uh, to visit him during the election for 1964, and Sukarno was actually building him a mansion he looked so much forward to having Kennedy there in 64. Of course, then, when, when he heard the news, 
Sicarno started weeping and said, why did they kill my friend John Kennedy? <laughs> well, every, everything the, the you're writing, just, every, everything the writing was on the wall. You know? Yeah, and, and everything everything you're describing here. I mean, you're you're going into all these details about what was going on, uh, not just in Vietnam but around the world. We see exactly how many things changed. Because the whole thrust of American foreign policy, not just Vietnam, right. that was obviously the biggest thing, changed with Kennedy's death, and that's why it's it's so distressing to have people like Noam Chomsky with the voice he has out there trying to minimize or distort the record of JFK's foreign policies to paint him as just another Cold Warrior as being no different than LBJ. And obviously, you and I, and hopefully others, understand that there was a vast difference between them. And we see not only the National Security Action Memorandum 263 becoming 273, and what a difference that was, but I think we see the most uh, obvious changes that happened because of the assassination is what happened to American foreign policy afterwards. You want to talk a little about that? Well, I, what, what, what happened was that by approximately the late 70s, rather the mid-70s, Nixon and Kissinger had finished up what Johnson had started, which is pretty much the reversal of things like the Alliance for Progress in Latin America. Uh, he had... Nixon and Kissinger went beyond even Johnson uh, in their cross-border raids in the Cambodia and Laos, which resulted in the overthrow of Sihanouk and the Cambodian genocide, which took the lives of about two million people. Then, when Nixon was removed from office, Jerry Ford became president, and he had been, of course, on the Warren Commission, falsified the facts of Kennedy's death, you know. And what happened there was something really that not enough people understand. He brought into power for the first time two guys named Rumsfeld and Cheney. All right. And what he did is those guys thought, now I'm, I'm really going to say this with a straight face because it's true. Those guys thought that Nixon, Kissinger, and Haig were too moderate. <laughs> because they wanted to reignite Kennedy's detente with Moscow. And so they brought in these private citizens led by Paul Nitsa, who has been an eternal hawk. And they created the committee called the Committee on the Present Danger. Yep. Aided by George H.W. Bush at the CIA... They were allowed to enter into the CIA offices and change the estimates on Soviet conventional strength and atomic strength. And this was the beginning of what's properly termed today the neoconservative movement and the rise of people like Richard Pearl and Gene Kirkpatrick. And this was the ultimate burial of JFK's foreign policy. I think it's epitomic that it happened under Jerry Ford, because you had Jerry Ford bearing the truth about Kennedy's death, and now you had Jerry Ford instrumental, with help from George H.W. Bush, at burying and essentially exterminating uh, his foreign policy. And today, if you ask me, the neocons dominate 
are not just in the Republican Absolutely. Party. They dominate the media. They dominate sure. a good part of the Democratic Party. Oh, absolutely. I mean, Hillary Clinton, absolutely. to me, was pretty much a neocon. You know? Well, wouldn't you, wouldn't you say, in my opinion, I, th I think we look at the, the Reagan years as when the, the conservative movement changed into this neocon thing. Before, the conservatives yes. were basically anti-communist and um, yes. less government. They became neocon, total Zionist, and uh, kind of Ayn Rand worshippers of greed. Uh, and Clinton, in the 90s, went from uh, uh, being, Democrats being concerned with civil liberties and uh, protecting the rights of people to hate speech laws and trying to lock people people up for, for saying something. And as you said, no disagreements on foreign policies. They're just this neocon Hillary Clinton basically was calling Donald Trump a wimp during the campaign because, you know, for wanting to get along with Russia. And I, we, we have no choice. I, I, I don't know. Do you know this? Policy. Do you know this? Do you know the Clintons vacation in the Bahamas at a giant mansion with Henry Kissinger? Did you know that? <laughs> well, it doesn't surprise me. And he, he gets yeah, around. Yeah, he advises when everyone. I heard that, when I heard that, I just about fell off my chair. What is any Democratic <laughs> president doing even talking to Henry Kissinger? Henry Kissinger is a war criminal. I mean, this incredible. guy is the heavyweight of genocide in the 20th century. He was we, we, have, we have to take a break again. Uh, Jim, we're going we're gonna, to... Uh, talk some more on the other side we have a lot more to talk about having great discussion with jim Eugenio. we will be right back you're listening to an exclusive podcast of the conspiracy show with richard serrett heard every sunday night from 11 p.m to 1 a.m on zoomer radio the new am 740 live from toronto canada earth the conspiracy show with richard serrett on Zoomer Radio. And welcome back to The Conspiracy Show. I'm Don Jeffries, your guest host. You may know me from my books, Hidden History, an expose of modern crimes, conspiracies, and cover-ups in American politics, and Survival of the Richest, how the corruption of the marketplace and the disparity of wealth created the greatest conspiracy of all. We are, Richard will be back, uh, uh, by the way, next week uh, the, with a great show. He'll have Linda Moulton Howell from earthfiles.com and James Abbott, author of The Outsider's Guide to UFOs. So be sure to listen to that same time, James channel next week. We are talking with Jim DiEugenio, longtime JFK researcher who, uh, who knows this stuff like nobody else today. And uh, we've been talking quite a bit about uh, foreign policy, about Hollywood and so forth. Uh, let's switch a little bit uh, gears. And I want to talk some more about the... Well, can, uh, I, can I just finish my thought? Oh, about sure, sure, things? sure. Go ahead, Jim. Sure, go. Okay. I said Kissinger is the heavyweight champion of 20th century genocides. He was instrumental in three of them. The first one is the one that doesn't get very much attention. It was the one in East Pakistan, Bangladesh, in which Nixon and Kissinger ignored and then actually aided the attempt by the West Pakistan country to kill, I think it's 300,000 people. In Bangladesh. The, the other one, of course, we know about is Cambodia, where Nixon and Kissinger's bombing campaign uh, destabilized Sihanouk 
all right, and allowed for the eventual rise of Pol Pot, and that was about 2 million people perished in that one. And then, of course, the one in East Timor, where he gave the green light to Suharto to go ahead and invade uh, East Timor, and I think that's about another 300,000 people. So here you have the Clintons vacationing <laughs> in the Bahamas with a guy who's got so much blood on his hands, I wouldn't even be in the same room with him. Right. Okay? But here's the, the, the titular head of the Democratic Party, and this is how far I believe the Democratic Party has fallen. And they wonder why we why why we believe in conspiracies. It's you can't. It's yeah. inescapable <laughs> to think where the, these people are supposed to be enemies. Aren't aren't the Clintons as ostensible liberal Democrats supposed right. to hate Henry Kissinger? I mean, Bill Clinton was a big uh, anti-war guy, right, during the Vietnam days. Bill Clinton campaigned for George McGovern. Exactly. Okay. <laughs> so what what the heck happened to this guy? You know. I mean, <laughs> Exactly. Or again, is, was he ever legitimate? I see. That's why people that uh, people like myself. I mean, I write about so many of these things, and, and you go down these rabbit holes, and you find out that uh, things are, n- are never as they seem. And, and you talk so much about, and, and you and I are in the same. We're both, I, I think, as the as the people on some of these Kennedy forums would say, we're, we're apparently both members of the Kennedy fan club or the Kennedy cult or whatever you want to call us. But I mean, we're just. Yeah. I'm just looking at it, you know, honestly, and and there's no question in my. Book Hidden History. I, I had all the quotes from people on the left who just were Malcolm X to William Kunstler to any of Eugene McCarthy. I mean, these are icons of the left, and they all hated the Kennedys. The hatred comes through. It's so obvious. You can't escape it. And Noam Chomsky today, your favorite and yeah. mine. I mean, just it's so obvious that that he has a hostility to this guy. Where he well, well, well. Uh, wait a minute. I, I don't know if you read what I've written about this guy. But what nobody yeah. knows is that Noam Chomsky did a 180-degree turn on this issue. You know that, don't you? Yes, 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 yes. Yeah, okay, you're aware. You want, you want me to talk well, about yeah, that Yeah, but yeah, descri- yeah, describe the audience exactly. Let them know. Okay, okay. Way back in the mid-'60s, there was an early researcher on the JFK case named Ray Marcus. Right. All right? right. And Ray Marcus did a lot of work on the Zapruder film, the Bastard and, Bullet. Was it the Bastard Bullet he yes. wrote? and CE-399, yeah. which, of yeah. course, is the magic bullet. All right? And so he migrated between the East Coast and West Coast because he had a business partnership on the East Coast. So he decided to visit some uh, prominent intellectuals in the Massachusetts area to try and get them interested in the JFK assassination. All right, remember, we're talking about the mid-60s around, around this time. And so right. one of the guys he visited was Noam Chomsky. And Chomsky originally gave him an hour. And so Ray came into his office, and he had he told me he only had about, like, four different exhibits. Okay? And so he went through them one by one. He said Chomsky was so enthralled by this stuff that he got his secretary on the phone and said, clear my agenda for the rest of the afternoon. Reschedule the appointments. Yeah. And Ray said he ended up spending four hours there. (laughs) (laughs) How can you talk about four exhibits for four hours? But they did. 
Okay. And this is how interested Chomsky was. Yeah. You know, how enthralled he was. And yeah. then what happened is he visited a couple of other people who knew Chomsky. They were interested also. And then Chomsky said he would get back to him about becoming a part of this movement. But he said he had a very odd discussion when one of Chomsky's cohorts drove him to the airport. And he remembered it as being something like, you know, if they can do that to the president of the United States, you know, what, what, what chance do we have? And, you know, and I've, I've, you know, me and you have heard that a million times, right? Okay, right. so, you know, <laughs> and so, but, but we, we just don't care, you know, because it's simply the yeah. right thing to do, you know? Yeah. And so what exactly. he, Ray said, when he got that message from one of Chauncey's colleagues, he said, you know, a little bit of an antenna went up in his head, and he goes, Chauncey's going to chicken out of this thing. You know, and so he waited for Chauncey to call him, as he said he was going to do, you know, but he never did. And so he said he got a letter from him later saying that, you know, I think I'm going to devote my energies to this Vietnam thing instead. You know, not being able to re relate what happened with Vietnam to Kennedy's assassination. Okay. And, of course, if, now there's no doubt from, from a career point of view that it's much more advantageous at that time to get involved in the anti-war movement than it was in the Kennedy thing. Because if you remember, sure. of course, the media yeah. was going after the Kennedy critics at that time. Right. You know, all right. But yet the anti-war movement was mushrooming, you know. And so, see, that's, and by the way, but even in 1975, now we're talking 10 years later, even in 1975, Chomsky signed a petition to constitute the House Select Committee on Assassinations. All right. All right? So, in other words, what Chomsky doesn't like to admit is that he's done a 180 on this thing. And he's never had to explain it because nobody's ever called him on it. Well, so many right. people have. You you and I have both talked about that. We, we, I call them neocons, a different kind of neo-believers in conspiracy. And also the people who have been converts. Uh, Gary Mack was probably the most famous one. Gary Mack wrote right. some great stuff for Penn Jones' continuing inquiry. He was about as right. pro-conspiracy as you can be. And he, he became this kind of neocon guy where he would, he would email me and say he still believed there's a conspiracy. But everything he ever said on all those awful television shows on the Discovery Channel and so forth was to promote the Oswald did it alone thing. There's so many guys like that. And I always ask whether it's Chomsky or anybody else, what are they seeing? If you believed in conspiracy, you and I know, if you, if you study this stuff for, uh, I don't know, really a week maybe. I mean, if you if you actually get immerse yourself in the 26 volumes to any degree or just read some of the, the critical works that were done early on, the accessories after the fact or something, where they did the work for you. They went through the volumes and they showed you what the Warren Commission conclusion was as opposed to what the hearings and exhibits evidence was that they sourced it to. And, and every time it's either contradicted, sometimes it had nothing to do with it. But anybody can right. see that the official case is impossible. So what, what are these people seeing that do a 180? What are they, what, what are they, I've never gotten an answer from them. I say, you know, what caused you, what, what have you seen to change your mind? You used to believe Oswald didn't do it. Why do you believe he did it? 
Yeah, well, see, but it wasn't. It's not just Gary Mack. If you also remember, it was also Dale Myers and Gus Russo. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Dale Myers yeah. was a conspiracy, and so was Gus Russo. Yeah. In in the nineties, up until when uh, in the eighties and nineties, up until when Oliver Stone's movie came out. Dave then Ritz's they too. did Dave, this one hundred and eighty degree some... transformation. Dale Myers goes on the Peter Jennings special in nineteen. I think it was no, no. Was it nineteen? It was two thousand three. Yes. And you remember what he did there with a computer He's... simulation? Oh, yeah. so impressive. Yes. He said, "It's not the single bullet theory. It's the single <laughs> yes. bullet fact." Exactly. Now, exactly. if that is not out of George Orwell. You know, I, I, you know, it's sort of like the famous, you know, this, the clocks were striking 13. Okay, <laughs> if you can say something like that on national television, then you've completely lost your self-respect. All right? I mean, that's just exactly. utterly and completely ridiculous. Yeah. Well, that, that leads us into it. That's what they did. I believe that there was a large amount of career advancement in those decisions. You know? Oh yeah, well, there's no, and I, th I think there's no doubt about that. But you lead that. That kind of leads us into one of my favorite topics. And and you've you probably read my post on the on the forums over the years. And you know, I'm kind of the kumbaya guy that wants us all to come together. And uh, there's so much friction in the in the uh, assassination research community. The people I talk to, it, it's just you have you have these huge uh, egos. These uh, difficult personalities sometimes, or everybody wants to have their little minutia be the, and they're they're disagreeing really over minutia, where we all know there was a conspiracy. We all know Oswald didn't do it. If you studied this case at all, I would have. What is that old line? I think Penn Jones said, "The only way to believe the Warren report is not to have read it." You know, and that's and that's right. that's kind of the way it goes. And but what what is? How do we ever come? Because it, one thing you'll notice about the lone nutters is that they're always they don't fight. With each other, they don't. There's no discord there. They don't care. They're they're just hey. They're just drumming home that there was no conspiracy. Where we are fighting all the time. And I hear music again. Unfortunately, I've raised this. So we'll we'll be back in a few minutes, and hopefully we can pick up on that, and we'll, we'll talk about some other things. We'll be right back. Question everything. This is the Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Follow the truth. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM740. Zoomer Radio AM 740 and 96.7 FM in Toronto. We're going to be opening up the phone lines. Listeners in Toronto can call at 416-360-0740. And you can call toll-free 1-866-740-0740. If you'd like to talk to G Jim DiEugenio, uh, please give us a call. Okay, Jim, go ahead and make your... I, sorry, you were interrupted by the break. You want to but you were point? talking about there... The second part of this book, The JFK Assassination, The Evidence Today, that's what I tried to do. I tried to get back to the original evidence. 
Okay, and I try to trace it back, because we know so much more about this stuff now, because of the declassified files to the JFK Act of 1992. We've got two million pages of declassified FBI, Secret Service, and CIA files, and State Department files. So I w what I try to do in the book is I try to take back these evidentiary issues, which were not really clear in the Warren Commission volumes, you know, because of these declassified files, now we can find out more about these things. So, like, for example, one of the things I did was Ruby's polygraph test. You know, because the other side, you know, if you remember, would always say, but Ruby passed his polygraph test. So, therefore, he was telling the truth. Well, now we know that that's a bunch of baloney, that the, the, the polygraph test was rigged by the FBI to the point that they actually turned down the what's called the GSR machine, the galvanic skin response, so as not to detect um, evidence of deception. All right, and so and I did this with several other things about also about the way that Ruby got in to the basement of the Dallas Police Department. I'm very proud of that section of the book. I did about five pages on that. You know, for to polish off Oswald, and so see, the way the the way I looked at this is that you had to get back to where did this evidence begin? You know, what's the trail? Because as you know very well, in almost every instance in the JFK case, sooner or later, what is called the chain of possession breaks. Absolutely. Okay, and then not only do you have a chain of possession problem. But you have what's called in legal circles an identification problem. Very few people know, but I'm sure you do, that the so-called rifle that the Warren Commission placed in evidence as being the rifle used to kill Kenny that day is not the rifle that they say Oswald actually ordered. You know that, right? Right, right exactly. Yeah, okay, It's a, because the rifle that is in evidence today is a 40.2 inch what they call a short rifle okay all right. all right that's not what oswald ordered oswald ordered a 36 inch manicure carcano which is technically called a carbine and right. if you can believe it nobody during the whole almost year that the warren commission was in session ever brought this well wait a second uh that ain't the rifle he ordered. So how did he get it? <laughs> no, no, well, what, Jim, what, what, would, what would a high profile, you know? what would a real defense attorney done? I mean, it, what would have, I mean, I, Walt Brown had a book called The People versus Lee Harvey Oswald. Uh, you probably read it back in the 90s, but where it was kind of a fictionalized version of what would have happened if Oswald had gone to trial now. That's assuming an honest courtroom, which are hard, honest courtrooms have always been hard to find in America, and they're really hard to find <laughs> now. But assuming that's true, the chain of possession problems you talk about alone, the Manilka Carcano, legally speaking, doesn't exist because the, the right. officers that uh, found it, Boone and Weitzman, signed sworn affidavits for German Mauser. So regardless right. of what that meant, any defense attorney would say, Your Honor, I'm sorry. Uh, there, there's, there's no, uh, there's no chain of possession. Where did this man liquor carcano come from? Regardless of what size it was. Same thing with mm -hmm. the, uh, the shells and and so much of the evidence. The, the evidence in the right, tipped case. Right. So, so that that's they wouldn't even have any evidence in Oswald. But I, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. Go ahead. 
Yeah, see, that, that what, you, what you're talking about is, is what they call a 402, in California, it's called the 402 evidentiary hearing, okay, in which if the, if the prosecution is trying to put something on in, into evidence, and you object on the chain of possession or the identification issue. You know, like, wait a you know, because another example is if you're going to introduce a photograph into, and this, people don't understand this, if you're going to in- introduce an illustration or a photograph into evidence, you have to have the guy there who took the picture or drew it, okay? And he has to certify that that is what he, he shot or drew. Well, in, for example, in, with the problems with Kennedy's brain, <laughs> the, the pictures are in the National Archives. They depict an almost intact brain. Right. Okay. And when the Assassination Records Review Board got the photographer, uh, Stringer, to, uh, under a deposition, Jeremy Gunn, the chief counsel, put the pictures you know, up on you know, a, uh, a light board. And he asked them straight on. He says, uh, did you take those photographs? And, and Don, if you were a screenwriter, you could not have written this scene any better. Okay? Stringer just sat there, and he looked puzzled, and he stood up, and he walked over to the, to the light board, and he started reading, and he said, That's, I never use that kind of film. That's Ansel. <laughs> Okay, and he said, then he looked and he said, and the process, because of the number you see at the bottom, that's called press pack. I never used the press pack technique when I was taking autopsy photographs. And so Don asked him again, and he said, well, in light of that, did you take these photographs? And he said, no. So, of course, if you had a real investigation, which we've never had in a JFK case, the next question is, who did take the pictures and why? Well, Jim, you know? where, 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 were the, where was the great Catherine Graham, as played by Meryl Streep, so magnificently? <laughs> where, where, were the, where were these journalists? I mean, these are stories. I mean, why didn't they talk about uh, – I talked about in Hidden History, uh, the, the flight of uh, 399. Not only was it a magic bullet, but the way it, – it, you know, it came back to Washington, D.C., in the pocket of Secret Service agent Richard Johnson, that just doesn't seem appropriate. It was, it went through who knows how many hands. There was no chain of possession. Even, even as ridiculous a piece of evidence as it is, there's right. no the chain of possession makes no sense. Uh, we're later told that wasn't the bullet. Anyhow, it wasn't identified. Tomlinson said he couldn't sleep at night. He was being pressured by our own inspector. These are the kind of things. Where was one investigative journalist, one Lois Lane type out there? Why didn't they go after this? I mean, you talk about if Watergate was a big story with Deep Throat and so forth, this should have been the story of the century. And I, I've talked before about how I, I, I was became politically aware during Watergate as a teenager, and I wanted to be a journalist. I wanted to be like Woodward and Bernstein, and I thought – once I started finding out about the Kennedy assassination, what a big cover-up that was, I said, well, I just got to let Dan Rather and these local people know, these, these journalists, they're going to jump all over this. I mean, look what they did with Watergate and crickets. And, and that's the problem we have. And, and you've written a lot about that, obviously, is the, the failure, the absolute failure of any investigative journalism on the Kennedy assassination or really any other important uh, bit of politics right. in this country. Right. Well, but what about Ben Bradley? Ben Bradley was yeah. supposed to be his friend. Yep. Some friend he turned out to be. 
you know? <laughs> with friends like that, all his friends. I mean, who is out of all of Kennedy's? There's there's not one guy that I can think of. All you know, his political alleged political allies. None of them came mm-hmm. out demanding a new investigation. All right. the critics were people like retired chicken farmers and uh, World Health Organization uh, right. Uh, right. workers. These were the people that did the work that investigated journalists never did. Yeah. Well, Garrison actually said that, you know, when when he was catching all this Haiti stuff, you know, for yep. investigating the case, he actually said, you know, sitting on his porch one night, and he goes, didn't this guy have any friends? You know? <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, his family, too. I, I like to con- contrast the... Well, the, well the, that, that's the, a different matter, because, you know, I, I, don't like, I don't like to criticize them, because that family has been so put upon, and, oh, my God, it's, it's terrible well, they, what's happened to well, them. Well, they have. I yeah. mean, what, but, the, the, but the, uh, you know, most people postulate the reason the Kennedys haven't spoken out is because they obviously fear for their safety. But I, I pointed out, if that's their strategy, it's not working because they continue to die unnaturally all the time. And, and contrast that to the, the Martin Luther King family or Dexter King yes. especially, and, and Coretta right. Scott King, they were real profiles in courage. And I, I hate to criticize the Kennedys, too. Again, I'm, I'm a diehard member of the Kennedy cult fan club like you are, apparently. But, but, uh, but the, still, the difference was that they had people in the family who were still in politics at that time, whereas the Kings really didn't. You know, at that time, you know, they, they, they really, I think only one of their kids, you know, actually ran for Congress. But I will say this that this is about to change because I can tell you that Robert Kennedy Jr. has a book coming out pretty soon in which uh, he's going to actually discuss this issue for the first time any member of the Kennedy family has ever done so. Right, right, exactly, and that's and that's great. And I, I wrote a lot about John F. Kennedy Jr. and I, I, you know, John F. Kennedy Jr. behind the scenes. I mean, I heard from insiders in his group that he, he had a quest to find out who killed his his dad. I, I you know, reporter Wayne Madsen told me that he had a, a meeting scheduled with JFK Jr. at George Magazine the week of his death. He was going to meet with him, mm-hmm. and his he was going to be assigned at George Magazine to investigate the assassination of President Kennedy. So, plane crash happened at a very fortuitous time for the people. People that uh, that had knocked off his brothers, but but at any rate, we're we're kind of getting off track there. But uh, but you and I are definitely in one accord with the way the media has treated this subject, and I point out over and over again that there wouldn't be a need for uh, books like ours, and uh, obviously the early critical works were out there. People don't realize what these these guys went through. Harold Weisberg typed up these; his wife typed up those manuscripts by hand, and he sold them because he he got yes, his first. Yes. Book, but he, I mean, he had to self-publish and. These were just incredible works. The filing Freedom of Information Act suits over and over again. Um, these were really courageous individuals, and they had to do it because the the New York Times, the Washington Post, despite what Hollywood says, you know, in their movie, they weren't doing this kind of, especially in the Kennedy assassination. I I can't think of anybody outside of Jim Mars and Earl Goles in Texas that did any kind of work outside of the band of critics. Uh, do you know of anyone? Uh. There was a guy in New York named Peter Kiss, who was a friend of Mark Lane's. And they, the New York Times, if you can believe it, was actually on the verge of launching an investigation into the JFK case. They had, by late 1966, and this is one of the declassified documents, they had begun to lose faith in the Warren Report. And Peter Kiss 
who I understand was a pretty good investigative reporter, was actually going to go ahead and begin reinvestigating the assassination. And it didn't happen. And I can, from my experience with these things, I can tell you what happened. Because once the word got out that they were going to do that, I'd be willing to wager that either John McCloy or Alan Dulles got on the phone and told, uh, you know, the management, uh, please don't do this, okay? And that was it for Peter Kiss and his reinvestigation of the JFK case. Well, we, we, can, we can certainly look at the way the, the media treated Jim Garrison. I mean, just absolutely disgracefully. The way they, yes. in unison, he had no sympathetic coverage. They just, they went after him like uh, attack dogs. And the, Oliver Stone right. encountered the exact same thing in 91. Uh, this, again, and don't, and universe. don't forget Richard Sprague. Yes, yes, of don't course. Don't forget Richard Sprague also. Okay. Yeah, the original. Now, I mean, what, I, I was working for Mark Lane's group as a teenage volunteer, the Citizens Committee of Inquiry then, and we were trying to lobby Congress, and we were so happy when the, when they reopened it, and we had heard good things about Richard Sprague, and he was intending mm-hmm. to take that investigation the right way, and then it was just unbelievable. That's what really opened my eyes as a, as a teenager to see how the press just jumped all over it, and this in Washington, D.C., where they waste money like it's going out of style, especially the Washington Post going crazy talking about how much money the, the investigation was costing and saying they care about how taxpayers' money is being spent and just right, attacking right. him and, and getting Gonzalez to infight and so forth. But um, right. I, yeah, it, it, it was uh, just just an amazing time. But um, you want to talk a little bit more about, am I, are we missing anything else that, that's, that's in the oh, new well, I, I, We didn't mention my website. If there's uh, interested people, uh, oh, I have a King? website called kennedysandking.com, okay, in which you'll see a combination of film reviews, book reviews, research articles on the four great assassinations of the 60s, both Kennedys, King, and Malcolm X, okay, in addition to the book. All right, so that's that's something that interested parties should take a look at. Well, I, well I'm, I'm, glad, I'm, 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 very, I'm very glad. proud of that website because I, I really do think that it's it's probably the best research site on the JFK case that there is. Oh, you get lots of traffic there, and it's it's become a big thing. But I, I it's funny you mention that because I had gotten a couple when people heard I was going to be a co-host, a guest hosting tonight. I got a couple emails from people, and again, in our in our very large community, and they asked, they actually brought up the Ken asked me to ask you about that because as as you know how all of us get I've been attacked a lot here and I know you've been attacked a lot. Um, there are those within this this community of ours, this fractured community, that think that uh, you use you're you're using this website as some kind of a gatekeeper or something. You're familiar with that? I'm sure you've been accused of that. You want to address that at all? Like, well, that that you that, that, that wait, you, wait, wait a minute. Just because I think certain ways. About well, they, certain they, things, well, I think they, that doesn't yeah. mean I'm a gatekeeper. Well, they, that I mean, was the term I, that they I will look at know. anybody's submission, right. you know, and I, I, you know, and the writers that I have that want to contribute to me, you know, on a regular basis, which I welcome, you know, I've I've never ever changed anything, you know, in any serious way in any paper that they've written for me, and you can ask them. You know, so the you're only not, you're thing not I looking ever make the... are, are, are typical grammatical or syntactical things. Or if somebody has gone ridiculously over long, okay, on something, 
You know, then I'll ask them, well, do you really need this section? I mean, nobody's going to want to read a 40-page article. So if Noam Chomsky <laughs> submits an article, you'd, you'd consider it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I, I will look at anything anybody submits. Okay, well, I just All had right. to ask you that. We, we, I'm hearing the music again. We're coming back. I just I wanted to ask that because a couple people asked me to. We'll, we'll be right back after uh, these messages. The truth is not out there. It's right here. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. This is no place for the naive or the faint-hearted. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. And we are back with Jim DiEugenio, our special guest. Jim, I, I, I was I mentioned earlier the article, the posthumous assassination of uh, John F. Kennedy, which I, I was uh, had a really big influence on in my thinking, and I was especially taken with the way you examined uh, the truth behind Judith Campbell Exter and her, and her uh, allegations, which I, in my mind, I believe that uh, her allegations kind of combined with this these alleged ties to the mafia and so forth that uh, began to be alleged, I guess, in the mid-70s. Uh, again, right around that time that we, we were trying to get a, a reinvestigation of the Kennedy assassination had a huge impact on the way the public began to look at John F. Kennedy and the Kennedys in general. And they began to look at them negatively as these reckless, sex-crazed guys who really didn't have any morals. And so their, their lives weren't that great. So really, really, they got what they deserved or however you look at that. You want to discuss, and I, I was really taken as why the same media, the same reporters that wouldn't listen to any of people, people like me that were trying to lobby back then as a kid, they wouldn't have any interest at all in so-called conspiracy theories about the assassination itself. Itself, yet they swallowed these tales of Judith Campbell Exner, hook, line, and sinker. The exact same media outlets published them and uh, basically gave them a great deal of credibility. Do you want to comment on that? Okay, yeah. Uh, that, that essay um, I wrote for Probe Magazine back in the, uh, I think, the uh, 1997 or something. And I have to say that was one of the most popular and most influential pieces that we ever published. That even that got attention from some big, uh, like the New York Review of Books, uh, Christian Center. You know, the, people were like really kind of, you know, surprised at this thing because nobody had ever done this exploration, you know, of uh, of, of the whole Exner thing, Mary Meyer thing, and the uh, Marilyn Monroe thing. And so I decided to do this, okay, because I, I said, well, you know, is this stuff really true? I mean, is, is, is People Magazine a, a, a good source for this? All right, and so I examined the extra thing at length and in depth, and I went ahead and I decided that there was something really wrong with this picture, okay, and that what happened was that, this woman surfaced during the time of the church committee when they were examining the crimes of the CIA and the church committee had decided that Eisenhower had ordered the assassination of Lumumba 
And that got a lot of the Republicans angry. Okay? Because uh, Ike was a storied hero of the GOP party. And so they decided to hit back by making Frank Church mention this name of Judith Campbell in the church committee volumes. So this made her a kind of major media star, because the New York Times ate this story up, of course. You know, they had hired a guy named, uh, I think it was uh, one of uh, Nixon's former speechwriters, and, you know, and he started drilling this story, you know, every week for about a month. And so she wrote a book, okay, not one trace in that book of any communication between the Chicago outfit and JFK. Well, we thought we had saw the end of Judith Exner, right? Well, that wasn't even the beginning of the end. Okay. <laughs> At almost <laughs> no, no. every anniversary of Kennedy's assassination, you know, at least uh, at least twice, okay, she wrote two more extensions of her story. One was for People yes. magazine, okay, and then she wrote another one. I think it was it might have been in Vanity Fair or something. And so I began to compare the stories, and there were I just could not believe that anybody could accept all the contradictions. You know, all the reversals. And sometimes she just outright lied. Okay? All right? And, you know, and then she, her reason for writing the, the story in, in the, the one in People magazine, I'm, she said, I'm, I'm on my deathbed and I have to rid my soul of the truth about me and JFK. And then, of course, five years later, she's still alive and she writes another story. Okay? And now she adds to it even more. <laughs> Mm-hmm. All right. See, the, the 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 whole aim, I believe, was to somehow reverse the image of Bobby Kennedy and yes. John F. Kennedy being militant foes of the mafia. That's what yep. they were trying to do. Okay, because of course, Exner, since she was friendly with Giancana, okay, and Giancana was one of the guys that Bobby Kennedy was making life a living hell for. You know, to the point that the guy eventually got out of America and went to Mexico. All right? And so they were using this to tarnish that image. You know, of course, there was never any evidence for anything that the woman said about carrying messages. And in fact, they caught another one of the guys who she named as being a messenger in the ARB, uh, deposed him. And he denied the story. Okay? <laughs> so, how, so anybody could fall for this woman. And, and, I, and again, again, I, I have to say, why did this have to be me? Why did I have to do this? You know? No, no professional journalist yeah. would do it. That's exactly why. Right. Right. That's, that's what the fourth estate has become in this country. And that's why yeah. we have shows like Richard Serrett's, you know, because we have to. Yes, and and again, it's, it's it's these are the same people. That's and that's what opened my eyes at such a young age. And I said, wait a minute, I've got, 
I've got this great evidence in my head. I mean, the, the single bullet theory, just that alone, and the magic bullet, the condition of it, the the uh, the holes in Kennedy's clothes, and and the moving wounds, and all, all these things that were that that cried out for investigation. And then you had, you know, a kind of sensationalist things like the Babushka Lady, the Umbrella Man, and these things that just made for a great story. And yet, there was no interest there, but they. We're all the interest in the world in Judith Campbell Exner is amazing. I'm hearing the music again. We're up against another break. We're going we're gonna to talk some more with Jim DiEugenio right after this. It is time to redefine reality. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. The magic bullet enters the president's back, headed downward at an angle of 17 degrees. It then moves upward in order to leave Kennedy's body from the front of his neck. Wound number two. Where it waits 1.6 seconds. Presumably in midair, where it turns right, then left, right, then left and continues into Conley's body at the rear of his right armpit. Wound number three. The bullet then heads downward at an angle of 27 degrees, shattering Conley's fifth rib and exiting from the right side of his chest. Wound number four. The bullet then buries itself into Conley's left thigh. Wound number five. Which it later falls out and is found in almost pristine condition on a stretch in a corridor of Parkland Hospital. That's some bullet. That's some bullet. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. From Zoomer Radio, AM 740. We are back with Jim DiEugenio talking about the JFK assassination. Jim, um, I, again, I, I've been stu- I've been studying and researching the Kennedy assassination myself since the mid 70s. I know you've been doing this a long time too. When we look at the, it, it's the state of. Uh, research today, the state of the community, uh, just as far as the general public, where are your thoughts on, on what we can possibly do? We saw the 50th anniversary uh, came and went, and it was a very sad occasion. Uh, they, they roped off Dealey Plaza. They didn't really allow much of a, it was controlled, uh, kind of a controlled ceremony, and it was clearly everyone that was involved in that ceremony was a believer in the official fairy tale. Uh, very distressing for people who uh, had, had gone there to gather there every year for a long time, and they really were kind of um, left out. Uh, which, again, was, a, I think, a message brought home to people that no conspiracy theories will be allowed, as, as, as they call them. Where, where do we stand now? If you, if you could tell people, what, what are you telling people as well, far as... Well, I'm uh, really glad you brought up the 50th, because, in my opinion, what happened there was an utter and complete disgrace. All right? I don't want to go into a lot of it, but as you said, I don't know if you were in Dallas on the 50th. No, no I wasn't, no. The, what the... What the mayor and the police did, they, and I'm not kidding, they completely roped off Dealey Plaza. You couldn't get in. You, the only way you could get in is you had to submit an application, and the application went through the Department of Homeland Security. Now, do you think that they were going to let me into Dealey Plaza? Well, I didn't even bother submitting one. All right? And then they literally, they called in for overtime. 200 Dallas police officers at every entrance into Dealey Plaza. They put these, uh, I'm sure you're familiar with them, they're, they're carpenter sawhorses across yeah. the street. 
backed up by police cars, backed up by men on foot, armed policemen. And I'm not exaggerating at all because I was there. And then the last defense was cops on horseback. So if somebody broke through, they would (laughs) go ahead and run them down on horseback. They feared something, didn't they? Yeah, I mean, and then, of course, we had nothing but propaganda on. We had the late Vincent Bugliosi, Chris Matthews, Tom Brokaw, etc. But I, I will say this. There is a reaction that's set into that. And I'm not at liberty to tell you the whole story right now, but there is a reaction coming in. Okay, in addition to this book by Robert Kennedy Jr., okay, there's a couple of things in the works that are really going to kind of make a lot of noise, all right? And I'm privileged to know about a couple of these projects because since I developed kind of a name in this field, you know, people doing these things, you know, call me up for advice and counsel, all right? So there is going to be a reaction to this. And, you know, so there is some hope out there, all right? Uh, and so... and. There's a lot of information in these new files, although some of them are still censored. So there's a lot of new information coming out in those files. And so there is, you know, a kind of other side to this thing, you know, which I think we have to look forward to. Because this information is going to get out there. It has an outlet now, at least two of them, maybe three. Well, I'm glad you told me about Robert Kennedy's book, because that, that's the reason why I was talking about the Kennedy family earlier, because it, it's going to take a member of the Kennedy family to get on Chris right. Matthews or, or uh, Rachel Maddow or uh, Sean Hannity or any of these things because right. we know how the left and the right theory Rachel Maddow is just as much a believer in the fairy tale as Sean Hannity is. I mean, there's the left and right completely well, agree that, on That's what's such a disgrace. You know, that you have people that are supposedly Democrats and supposedly liberals. I mean, I mean she went to Stanford. I mean, she went to Oxford. Okay, do you really think she's that stupid? I don't think so. No. No. You know, I think that once you get to a certain level inside the establishment, you know, they give you the they give you the uh, you know, the the speech. You know, you can do anything you want, but don't talk about the assassinations or the CIA and drugs. Well, I, yeah, okay. I, I, I think that that may happen, but I, I remember I, I was privileged to meet Harold Weisberg on a very memorable evening back in the early 80s and had dinner at his home. And, and he told me, and it still stuck with me all these years later, he said, you know, they, they, didn't have to, they didn't have to tell the media to cover up. They just did it instinctively. And I, that's the way I look at it is that they're, they're trained. They just they hear this word conspiracy theories and they just know not to go there. It's like they just nobody has to say, "Hey, you can't." I, I don't think. I mean, maybe, maybe if if these there are a few of them, maybe. We are back. We experienced some technical difficulties there. Hopefully, we have them uh, fixed now. Jim, can you hear me? Yeah, I'm. I, I'm here. I'm so sorry about that. I, I know what happened. Hopefully, we got over that glitch. So, where, where were we? Uh, I didn't mean to have you interrupted. Well, uh, you were. You, 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 there is something in there about the media psyche, about don't go to a conspiracy theory. But you know, the, the point is, this is not a conspiracy theory. This, it's a fact. John F. Kennedy was killed by a conspiracy. Okay, any examination of the evidence—it's just a matter of, of who did it and what the reasons were. 
But but let me wrap it up by saying, you know, I, I spent some time on the media in this book, but there was a story that I couldn't get into the JFK assassination, the evidence today, because I came across it too late. Alec Baldwin is probably the biggest television star there is because of Donald Trump getting elected. He wanted to do a special on the JFK case for the 50th anniversary. And on that time, I think he was in that show, what, 30 Rock or something? Yes, yes. With Tina Fey? Right. And he said, so I went in to pitch my idea about a combination biography and look at the assassination, a fair-minded look. And these guys told me, they said, Alec, we've kind of made our peace. We've made our settlement with the Warren Commission report. All right, so that's a, we're not going anywhere else with this. And he said that was that. That's what they told him. Yeah. You know? So this kind of stuff, it does exist. But I also agree with you. These people in who work in the media, you know, they know that to get along, you go along. So they don't even bother, most of them. Alec Baldwin's kind of a maverick, so he would do something like that. You know, sure but you know, forget sure about you know, Chris John, Matthews. John Barber has been, it's been in the uh, entertainment business forever. He was Frank Sinatra's writer for a while, Lucille Ball's favorite writer. He's having a hard time getting his... Uh, his film, the, the assassination of JFK, uh, and the media uh, filmed anywhere. I mean, he, he's trying to get attention for that, and, and he has lots of these contacts. And yes. Even, even yes. with that, it would be the same kind of thing as Alec Baldwin now, who is huge name, big celebrity. Right. Right. But they still can't break through that wall there about this subject. See, that, that's why I've always said I think the American media is probably the worst media of all the westernized countries. It has the worst problems with censorship of anybody. And that's, it's really sad. But yeah. that's, I think that's the truth myself. Well, I, I think the, the, a lot of people have commented. I believe it was Lou Rockwell that, that, that told me that uh, you know, the difference between Taz or Pravda at the height of the Soviet Union and our media now is that the, the Soviet citizens back then understood that their media was state-controlled, and they knew they were lying to them. Right. A lot of our citizens don't seem to be aware of that and don't seem to realize they're being lied to. They actually think we have a free and independent press. Right. Right. And, and, and we don't. Not, not even close. No. And, it's, 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 and, and we see it in this subject here because you're, you're talking about, as you mentioned, if, this is a, if we had a real, uh, even a two-party system, I mean, we, and let alone a multi-party system, if we actually had opposition parties, then... Uh, someone from Kennedy's party, someone that supposedly agreed with them, uh, alleged liberals, would have been up in arms after the assassination, and they, w they would have been demanding a new investigation right away, a real investigation. They would criticize the Warren Report, and they're just, the left especially was empty until you had, you know, at independent civil libertarians like Mark Lane that stepped forward to Bertrand Russell. Right. Well, Mark, Mark Lane was really about it. You know, he, that guy was the only guy who, for that whole year of 1964, you know, was saying, you know, there's something wrong with this. You know, and, and he traveled throughout the whole country, traveled to Europe. The FBI surveilled him, both in the United States and abroad. 
Yeah. You know? And we still have people trying. It, it's, that's why it's amazing. And, and that, that the press, what they would do, even back then, they would, they would be skeptical of the skeptics. We had the, Anthony Lewis and, you know, writing the, uh, the critics and scavengers right. in the Warren Report. And this, this is the way they were treated then. And it's kind of the way you see uh, maverick whistleblower types treated now, where the press just, instead of embracing them, examining what they're, what the, what they're exposing, and uh, is this valid? They don't. Instead, they just instantly go after them, and see it's the attack the messenger thing. And any time, unfortunately, because this cover-up has been going on for so long, when when you and I, people like us, talk about the Kennedy assassination, the, the reporters kind of roll their eyes. Oh, that mm-hmm. again? That story? Right. Have, hasn't that been? Right. <laughs> it hasn't. It's never been investigated, as you pointed out. There, there's never been a real investigation into the the murder of a sitting U.S. president. That's. That's just absolutely shameful when you sit there and consider that. And it's left to people like us to try to point it out. And, uh, and unfortunately, even though, ni- as Richard Belzer once said, that 90% of the people believe there's a conspiracy, but the rest of the people work for the uh, media and the government. Jim, it, it, it's gone by too fast. Uh, I really enjoyed talking to you. Uh, you want to quickly tell people how are they, where they can get your book? Yeah, you can get the JFK assassination, the evidence today, through Amazon.com. Barnes and Noble or at Skyhorse. Okay, Skyhorse Publishing. Okay? That's my publisher, too. Thanks so much for being with us, Jim. And right. folks, uh, Richard Searrett will be back with you next week at the same time. Thanks okay, for good having me. Good night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.